Well, we are in the gospel of Jesus according to Matthew, and that's a good way to keep your mind on Jesus. It's not the gospel of Mark, Matthew, Luke, or John. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the good news of Jesus according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I want to begin by telling you what happened to me just a, actually a couple days ago. It was Thursday. I like to ride my bicycle. I pedal all throughout the winter, or at least I tried to. And I don't know if you know where Miller Road is in Plainsfield Township. It connects, uh, or at least it, it eventually gets to Mud Run. And I'm going up over the hill, and believe me, very, very slowly. And I get to the top of this hill, and I almost rode by this. But I happened to catch out of the corner of my eye. It, it happened to be right in the yellow lines in the middle of the road. Some creature just doing circles over and over and over between those lines. So I stopped. I got my camera phone and my phone out, took a video of it. You're going to see it. If you're not already, you'll see it. It's a mole, I guess, or a short-tailed shrew. I don't know. Somebody said that was a Shakespearean thing. I think it's a mole, and it's just going in circles over and over and over. I posted it on Facebook, put it on Instagram. Somebody who is an avid hunter in our church says that it has a neurological disease. That's why it's doing that. Somebody else, however, said that probably that mole just listened to one of my sermons. <laughs> now, if you are new to this church, one of the reasons I'm telling you this story is to help you understand just how much abuse the pastoral staff takes here. And yet God's grace continues to permeate my heart. And I love you anyways. That really should make you feel terrible. Especially the one, and I don't want to call her by name, but the one who actually wrote that. Some of you might suffer this condition by the end of this message, by the way. I'm preparing you for this. Because we're going to look at one word mainly. And it's a word that I couldn't get past. I really intended to do the first, and I'll explain what this is, the first beatitude and the Sermon on the Mount. But I got to this word, and the more I began to study this word, I really became convinced that it might be one of the most important words in the Bible. Now, it's easy to say that. And I know pastors sometimes can be given to overstating things. I don't think I overstated that. I think this word is that important. So let me give you a brief review. Point number one, if you're taking notes. Here's the Sermon on the Mount. Here's how it begins. The, actually, the sermon doesn't yet begin. Matthew uh, sets it up for us. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Let's look at it together. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, we looked at this two weeks ago, the first of this series. And we realized that Jesus had just selected 12 men. He had gone up, he had prayed about this all night. The Father helped him know who to select. In the inspiration of that, he came down. He selected 12 men who would be the core of his group of disciples. Now, remember, the Jewish system had perfected the art of making and training disciples. It was well-developed by the rabbis. All children, now listen, every child from the age of 6 to the age of 10, boys and girls, attended what we would call elementary school, taking place in the synagogue, 
It was called Bet Shefer, or Bet Sefer. For very good male students, when they completed that at 10 years old, they would now go into the secondary school called Bet Talmud. Bet means house, spelled like Beth. And they would go to Bet Talmud until they were 14 years old. And for the very, very elite, at 14, and by the way, only boys could go beyond age 10 into their school system. But for the very best, the very elite of the boys, there came a third opportunity that began at age 15, or age almost at the conclusion of 14, and it usually typically lasted until age 30. How coincidental that most believe that's about when Jesus inaugurated his public ministry. So for, for the very best of the students, they could enter Bet Midrash. That was the third and final phase. And when they entered Bet Midrash, the student would find a rabbi, they would go to the rabbi, and they would ask the rabbi if they could become his disciple. The rabbi would very vigorously, in a very difficult manner, interview the student. He wanted only the very best. He wanted to know if the student had applied himself in the other two lower branches of school, and if he had the ability to do what he must do if he's going to be his disciple. You see, what he must do is become like the rabbi, know what the rabbi knows. So he would interview him. And if he accepted that student, he would say to him two words in Hebrew, three when you, when you translate it to English, come follow me. That was the invitation to become his disciple or what they called his Talmud. The student became his disciple. He would live with the rabbi. He would learn his yoke. The yoke was that rabbi's interpretation of the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. The Torah particularly was the first, were the first, was the first five books of the Old Testament. And then the other surrounding scriptures, all 39 books. The goal of discipleship, again, I want to stress this again, was for the disciple to become like the rabbi in every way, completely yielded to his authority. This is the backdrop. Now listen, if you study the Sermon on the Mount without understanding that, you're not even going to get really off of the runway of verse 1 with accuracy. He's calling his disciples to him. What's he doing? He's about to teach them his yoke so that they would learn it, be transformed by it, know it, and become like him. The entire Sermon on the Mount is Jesus, the rabbi, training his disciples to become like him. It's the most perfect, the best discipleship manual you will ever read. And the very first thing that Jesus does when he begins his sermon is he helps them celebrate the blessings. Now listen. Because now it sweeps every Christian in this room into this. He helps them celebrate the blessings that every true disciple of his possesses. Now here's where some of you might begin doing the mole circle. 
We're going to look at the first word of his sermon, blessed. Point number two. Let me give you a little bit of a run, running start, and then I'm going to really give it to you about what the word blessed really means. But you've got to understand this. There's a history, point number two, there's a history of God's blessing. This is amazing. Now, I'm going to, I'm, my goal today in this sermon, in this point in particular, a little bit in point three, is to help you hear the word blessed like one of the Jewish people would have heard it when he said it at the beginning of his sermon. Now look what he says in verse, the very first part of this sermon, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and here it is, blessed. That's the first word. Now look at it, verse 3. Blessed, verse 4, blessed. Verse 5, blessed. The next one, blessed. Again, blessed. Verse 8, blessed. Verse 9, blessed. Verse 10, blessed. Verse 11, blessed. There's something here that we've got to understand. If you don't get what this word means, you can't let the power of the Sermon on the Mount detonate in you. If you want it to explode with transformational significance, then you need to understand why so often is he repeating this? What does this word really mean? What does a Jewish mind think of when it hears this word, blessed? The them, the them, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, is the disciples. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the disciples. He's brought, I guess you could put it this way. He has the disciples almost gathered around him and outside of them, the crowd. He's preaching to his disciples first, and then like a very large net, he's casting it out to the crowd. It's not unlike what I do when I preach. Same thing. I create these sermons, I write these sermons for the believer. But they are redemptive in power because it's the Word of God. When you centrally embed your sermon on the Word of God, it takes on the potential transforming power of the Word of God. So what I do is I preach to the believer, but I'm casting the net out to anybody that might be here. And there's at least three groups. There's the unbeliever. You know who you are. You're here right now maybe because your spouse or your parent asked you to be. But if it were really truly on your own, you might not be here. You really probably don't even have an interest in these things. Now, hopefully, every once in a while, when you see circling moles, you might say, oh, that's kind of interesting. But for the most part, you're really not here to know God. You're here because it's a duty. See, there's unbelievers likely here, but then there's the self-deceived. Those who believe that they're Christians because they probably likely were brought up in a church and they've prayed a prayer at some point in a perhaps moment of desperation. And so, yes, I'm a Christian, but there's no power in your life. There's no fruit in your life. There's no evidence in your life. In fact, most of the evidence, if not all of it, speaks to the contrary. So there's unbelievers here, likely, and there's those who are self-deceived, likely, but then there's those who are disciples. 
Every disciple of Jesus is a believer. Every believer is a disciple. That's actually the most important thing I've told you so far. Every disciple in Jesus is a believer, and every believer is a disciple. Unfortunately, some have separated those. The scriptures won't. So there's three groups. I'm preaching first to the believers, the disciples, but I'm casting a net that says, hey, you should listen to this because you might want to become a disciple and you might realize that you're not a disciple and there might be today the day of your salvation. So I'm throwing the net out wide, but I'm really fishing for the believers. I want you to be transformed. Jesus does the same. And he begins the sermon with this word, blessed. You know what the Jewish mind very likely would have understood immediately with this? There's a connection. That's true, by the way, when you smell something in particular, and all of a sudden it connects straight to a memory. Or when you hear a song that you haven't heard in a long time, and it connects straight to the experience that you once had when that song was playing. There's connections that go on. And so when Jesus said the word blessed, and he repeats it, the Jewish connection would have taken them all the way back to what they studied intensely in Bet Sefer from Genesis chapter 1. Here's what it says in verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Now listen to these four words, and here's where I believe the Jewish mind would immediately go. And God blessed them. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount declaring, blessed are, he's talking about the believers, the disciples, those who have come into the kingdom. That's extremely explicit in verse 3. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So those who are in the kingdom are blessed. The Jewish mind is going back to Genesis chapter 1. Wait a minute. God created all that there is. He pronounced them male and female, and then he blessed them. Now, if you're looking at that verse in Genesis, your English teacher told you never to do this. There's a period after them, and then it begins with a conjunction, and. We're not supposed to do that. But the word and is a connector to conjunction, meaning it connects two thoughts. And so God creates Adam and Eve, male and female, and conjunction, connector, and he blesses them. So all that God created, God blessed there's a lot of power in this. There's a couple big ideas when you think of the word blessed from the word of God. Let me give you a couple big ideas, all tied up in this word. Number one, to be blessed or to be pronounced blessed by God was a public declaration that you have found a favored status with God. You're in a good relationship with him. Those who are in a good relationship with God are blessed. But there's a second big idea, and that is that God's blessings enable his people to live in a way that pleases him. Now that you got to dig down a little bit deeper. His blessings enable you to live in a way that pleases him. 
Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. If you've ever been to a word faith church or a name it, claim it preacher, prosperity preachers, they love this verse. They interpret this as this richness as wealth and health. But God gives many riches. Here's some of them. Honor, yes, sometimes material goods. Here's another one, promotions at work or status on a cheerleading team or knowledge of him. Those are all riches that God gives. Now listen, how do you know when it's a rich, a rich how do you know if they are riches that God gives or if they are riches that the world is giving? Listen, here's how you know. It's the second part. God will never add trouble to it. If God increases your life, it will not become a burden. Not so if you win the lottery, according to study after study, virtually everybody that wins the lottery, it ruins their life, and they come to regret that they even filled out the ticket. The world's riches add trouble. God's never does. It's his blessing. It's the blessing of the Lord that makes you rich. Listen, you could have nothing of prosperity in the world's eyes and be incredibly blessed and rich. It has nothing to do with your external circumstances. It has everything to do with God's favor and God's power to enable you to live the way that pleases him. That's what it means to be blessed. Adam and Eve were created in a state of God's blessing. Having been given everything they needed to live right and to have supreme joy and happiness. Now watch this. Yet they didn't trust in that, nor were they content with the blessings of God. And tempted by the serpent, they wanted to be, listen, the blesser. Do you want, they wanted to be like God. They wanted the power of blessing. They wanted to, the power of controlling one's comfort, of controlling one's satisfaction, of controlling your own happiness. And with that single act of defiance, it shattered the, the blessings of God. It ushered into creation sin. And with that sin, it brought the curse, the very opposite of blessings. And very soon, you know the story. Here comes Abel. Here comes Cain. Cain, filled with jealousy and hatred, murders his righteous brother Abel. This is what you begin to see when blessings are fractured by sin. And when you want to be in control of your life and to guarantee your own happiness. And all of a sudden from Cain's line, his descendants, came Lamech, the very first to take more than one wife. Not a good idea ever. Who takes the new technology, the verse before, of swords. The very verse before says they just founded, they just created the ability to make swords and have war. And all of a sudden, Lamech 
filled with a braggadocio spirit sings. It's in chapter 4. He erupts in a song, and he brags about his vengeful, warlike spirit, which is 77 times greater than Cain's, his forefather. But humanity only got worse. It doesn't, very, it doesn't take very long. You only get to Genesis chapter 6. Things were so bad, people were so full of sin. There's a difference, by the way, between total depravity and utter depravity. Total depravity, basically, simply, is that sin strikes all of us and it courses through us. There's no good thing that you do in God's eyes. Even the very best that we do before Christ fail his perfect standard of holiness. That's total depravity. Utter depravity is this. Every single thing you do is to the extent of sin that's possible. And this is where you are in Genesis 6. Listen, this is where you will be, the Bible says, in the end times. People will be utterly depraved. Genesis 6, there was no redeemable nature in people, and God destroys all that live except for Noah and his family and the animals that God led to him. The flood covers the earth, and when the waters recede, the ark is grounded, the door is let down by the hand of God, they are ushered out, and it's not long until you get to Genesis 9, and all of a sudden these words again, look at this, and God blessed Noah. Very similar to what he did with Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but it's not long again until Noah plants a vineyard. It's another garden image. And he makes wine, and he's drinking so much of it that one night he's lying naked in his tent, and his son Ham comes into the tent, sees his father naked in a drunken stupor, and instead of covering him, which is what you should have done, what the, what the human nature would have wanted him to do, the sin nature turns him around and does nothing to protect his father's image. Noah hears about it. It's a disgraceful act. By the way, biblically, a nudist colony is what it means to uncover nakedness. It's always in the scriptures a disgraceful act. Why am I telling you that? Because I think some of you visit them. No, that's not at all why I'm telling you that. Why I'm telling you that is instead of just saying, oh, that's disgusting, you need to gain a theological understanding of why it's wrong and to be able to talk to people that when you do that, you are naked and ashamed. You have no covering. Men, why do you not wear a hat when you're worshiping in the sanctuary? Well, Corinthians says your covering, your authority is Christ. Ladies, why did Paul say it's not right to have no hair? Because your hair symbolizes your husband, which is your authority. Listen, I'm not making this up. This is what the scripture says. There is a covering that is decent. And when you go without it and you do nothing to cover it, then you are participating in disgrace. That's what Ham did. He was judged for it. Noah, his father, finds out about it and he curses his son. And from his son, well, let me say this carefully. 
come today's people of Iraq and Iran who are always embattled in hatred to God's people. You get the Babylonians, you get the, the Assyrians from Ham, the one who walked away without covering his father's disgrace. And all of a sudden you see the curse that has fractured the blessings and how it permeates generation after generation in people groups. But all of a sudden we get some hope. All of that happened in Genesis 6, the flood, a little bit later in 8 and 9, Ham and the disgrace. Then all of a sudden you get to chapter 12 of Genesis and you meet a man named Abram who will be renamed to Abraham. And for no reason other than God's divine prerogative, God chooses to bless him. He's going to father a people. He has no children yet. But he's going to father a people who will be God's people, Israel. And through Israel, God will extend his blessings all over the world. Listen, it is important. It is utterly imperative you hear what I'm telling you. Because this is all through our government. The Bible explicitly says in Genesis to bless Israel will be to receive God's blessings. But if you turn away from her, if you turn against her, you will turn, God will turn his blessings from you. If you want America to be blessed, you need to pray for America to be a blessing to Israel. That is non-negotiable in the word of God. Israel has been, is, and will be God's people. And eventually from Abraham is going to come one who will redeem humanity from the curse of sin. All the way back to Genesis, right after Adam and Eve sinned, we get a sneak peek of this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, now remember, they had just sinned, they had just eaten the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And God says to the serpent, I will put enmity, that means conflict, between you and the woman and between your offspring, listen, that's the people of the world, and her offspring, that's Israel, and will one day be the church, and he shall bruise your head. It's also a singular, meaning there is somebody that's coming. He's going to bruise, he's going to crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. You know what that means? That's called in theology, if you like these terms, the proto-first evangelium. This is the first mention of the gospel. And what it is, is it's pointing you to Jesus. Jesus is going to come, and he is going to crush Satan, but he's going to be crucified in the process, and God, his Father, by his power, will raise him back to life. Interestingly, the Bible says the Father raised him to life. It also says that Jesus raised himself to life. That's the power of God. Abraham, you're going to have a descendant. He's going to come and he's going to administer and deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head. But that victory will come at a cost. And the mystery is made clear again as we begin to get to the beginning of the New Testament. We see Jesus born holy, born from God. 
He's the Messiah. He is Jesus Christ. He's going to be crucified on the cross, yet he will be raised to life. And all of that you see by the end of Matthew's gospel. But what the Jewish mind would have done when Jesus said that one word, blessed, it would have taken them all the way back to Genesis. Adam and Eve, they rebelled. They brought the curse of sin. Yet even right afterwards, God promised deliverance. You see, the grace of God is the fountainhead of his blessings. And in this sermon, Jesus announces that the kingdom of God has come, and now these blessings are available to all who enter it, which brings us to point number three, our final point. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are. Now, that word are, by the way, is not even in the text. It's just put there to help the English read. It's not in the Greek text. These are declarations. These are proclamations. Blessed is the proclamation, the declaration. And then he gives one after another. Who are the blessed? The, point, the third point is this. The blessing is for those in Christ's kingdom. Now, I want you to think for a moment. When I mention the word blessed, what do you think of? I'll give you a few examples. Somebody sneezes, God bless you. That's, I don't know, I don't know where that came from. I think I heard from Germany. It's when it was a superstition that there was a demon that was expelled out of you, and God bless you kept it from coming back in. I have no idea if that's true. That's actually what my teacher said when I was a little kid. Or that, that, that athlete, that ball player, is blessed with athleticism. Or maybe you think of the song, God Bless America. But what does it really mean to be blessed? Now, I've given you a lot of historical roots of it. Now I'm going to really tell you what it means. And I want you to remember this illustration. This is D.L. Moody, one of the greatest preachers that has ever walked this planet. He ministered in Chicago. He gave this story once of a poor shop girl who worked in a shop in Chicago. And one day, she could not have even bought a dollar's worth of anything. She was so poor. But the very next day, she could buy a thousand dollars worth of anything she wanted. What made the difference? And D.L. Moody answered it this way. She married a rich husband, and all that he had became hers. Now, I just illustrated theologically, or I just illustrated in a story what it means theologically to be blessed. Here it is. You ready? Then I'm going to read it to you. This is huge. Christian, come on. Get this in your mind. You're going to need this on those days when life is falling apart. Days when you sin. All that Christ has, all that Christ has became yours when you responded to his invitation to follow him. Come on, let that permeate. Let that get down into your heart and let it begin to free you. God is not an angry, wrathful being, Christian son and daughter of God, that's got his thumb on the smite button ready to punish you every time you sin. That's not the picture of God that you get when you read the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, all that Christ has is yours. All of it, every bit of it. Now watch where this is made clear in Scripture. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. 
underline this in your Bibles, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, let me correct something that might be happening in your brain unwittingly. It didn't just say with a lot of spiritual blessings. It didn't even just say with most spiritual blessings. You've got to get the emphatic word from the Greek, every spiritual blessing. There's not one that fell out of the basket that tumbled away and God didn't notice, but he gave you the rest. You've got every spiritual blessing through Christ in the heavenly places. Everyone. This is blessing, and it comes only through Jesus. And here's the second most important thing I'm going to tell you. And it, it means that you are now sharing in the very life of God. That is what a Jew would have heard. That is what a Jewish person would have thought because they knew that from the Old Testament. When God pronounced you blessed like he did with Adam and Eve, like he did with Noah, like he has done all through the Bible, like he has done with you in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are a Christian, when he pronounces you blessed, he is telling you that you now share the very life of God. It's only one who has been saved through Jesus who is a blessed person. The world cannot understand this because that person cannot experience this. And from the very beginning, and I love this as my favorite statement of the entire sermon, from the very beginning, God has been determined to bless his creation, determined to bless his people. Listen, how could you not know that when every time he blesses somebody, they bring sin into the picture and it fractures it? And then he picks them up by grace, renews his covenant, and blesses them again. He is determined to bless you. Even when you have a horrible week, even when you have given yourself over to your flesh and he convicts you and he leads you into repentance, his blessings are back. His mercy is new every single morning. This is a God that is relentlessly going to bless you. He cannot not bless you. And he pours out the full expression of his blessings upon those who are in a relationship to him. Now, the reason I said that is this. Because you could rightfully quote to me from Isaiah that says, well, God brings the rain on the just and the unjust. So God blesses those in the world. And I would say, yes, he does. It's called common grace. He gives grace to everybody. But the full expression of God's blessing is only for those who are in a relationship to him. And he is making that clear with the very first word of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a declaration. Blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12 are the declarations and the promises of Jesus that God is determined to bless those in his kingdom. 
They are guarantees. They are promises that God has given his people a new capacity, a new heart with new desires in order to live in a way that pleases him. That's what it means to be blessed. Not only do you get the favor of God, you get the power of God to live in a way that pleases him. That's what it means theologically for God to bless Now, this is massive. I'm not going to be a whole lot longer, I hope, but let me just explain this. The Pharisees and the rabbis, they had a very different understanding. Captured, by the way, in a modern statement from a Jew. This is on the website. He's alive today. He wrote, we children of Israel are righteous. Now, you get that? We children of Israel are righteous, not will be righteous or have been made righteous. The Jewish mindset is because they're a Jew, they are righteous. That's how they think. He goes on, for the Torah, the first five books of the Bible says so. Of course, we must uphold the Torah or otherwise we might cease to be righteous, but as long as we keep the Torah, we are righteous. So they believe that they are in right standing with God in a favored status, first because they are Jews, and second, if they obey the law. So righteousness to the Jewish mind is gained from, by, from obeying God's law. And the Jewish elders believed that Moses wrote down the Torah, the first five books of Moses, but that he also taught the oral Torah. That's the interpretation, the applications of these five books. And so the rabbis, and I try to grab this, the rabbis expanded on the first five books of the Bible. And they eventually collected all of these expanded teachings into a book. One of the books is called the Mishnah. Here's an example. The written Torah forbade work on the Sabbath, right? We all know that. It's one of the commandments. <laughs> but Moses only gave a few explanations of how do you keep that seventh day holy and separate. There's too many loopholes, and Israel kept breaking the Sabbath. So the elders expanded on the rules and the interpretations, and they built what was called a fence around the law. And what emerged in the Sabbath by the time of Jesus was 39 categories of prohibitions, each one of them with all kinds of interpretations and applications, all 39 of them totaled up to 1,521 ways that you must keep the Sabbath. This is what they had to learn, and this is just the Sabbath. I'm not even talking about how do you live in a married life? How do you keep your implements pure that you use in the sacrifice? I'm not even bringing that in. Just for the Sabbath, 1,521 ways that you've got to keep the Sabbath. If you want to be righteous. In short, a Jewish person believed they were righteous because, number one, they were in Israel, the covenantal people of God, and number two, because if they maintained obedience to the law, they continued to be righteous. You see, the Sermon on the Mount dismantles this. This is why they hated him. It's why they hated Jesus. He dismantles the system. He alarms, he infuriates the Jewish leaders. Jesus taught, chapter 4, verse 17 of, of Matthew, 
You've got to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. If you want to become righteous, you've got to repent. It starts there. If you want to be in the kingdom of God, you're not automatically included because of your heritage, because of your blood, because of your obedience to the law. You've only, you're only going to get into the kingdom through repentance. So a blessed person was a repentant person who was made right with God one way, through faith in Jesus. And while the Pharisees taught how to live in order to be right with God, Jesus taught how to get right with God so that you can live in a way that's pleasing to him. See, the blessed are those who have been given by God a new heart to live in his kingdom. To be blessed is to have a divine joy and a perfect happiness, utterly independent, not connected to what's happening in your life. You can be joyful even when you lose your job, when you are the blessed, because you know who's on the throne. You know who loves you. You know that you're participating in the very life of God. You know his favor is upon you, and he's giving you the strength to be able to live in a way that's pleasing to him. That's what it means to be blessed. It's when you know that God has his approval for you, and you can sing, and this is a song from Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Christian, sister, and brother, that's what God does over you. He rejoices over you. Now, your eyes can't see it. Your heart can believe it. He exalts over you. He calls you the blessed. And this is what separates the devout Jew from the Christian, for they believe everything that I just said about Zephaniah, the Jewish person did. But the Christian alone understands it's Jesus who is the God in your midst. True blessing is rooted in Jesus. The Beatitudes, which we will begin looking at next week, are the declarations and the promises of God's blessings for his people. They are words of celebration to the disciples who have been awakened by the power of God and brought into his kingdom. They are the words, listen, they are the words of invitation to the crowd who have been mired in a false, wearying system of trying to obey the law in order to be righteous. Jesus is inviting you, take my yoke upon you for it's easy and light. It's not like theirs. The Beatitudes, simply put, are the descriptions of the heart that the gospel gives when God blesses. Let me close with this. Christian, don't close your minds yet. Just listen to this. It's going to be less than a minute. Jesus has declared you blessed. It's one of the greatest words in all the Bible. You have a divine joy, a perfect happiness that's not dependent on outward circumstances. You've got a happiness that flows from participating in the very life of God. You've got an inner contentment and a satisfaction that comes because you know that God's favor is upon you, that he exalts over you, that he sings over you and rejoices over you. You've got God's approval. You've got his acceptance. You've got his love. And you didn't have to do anything but put your faith in Jesus. And the final statement that I will make, and it's going to be the launching pad, Lord willing, for next week, 
You've got this blessing in part now, Christian, but it pales in scope of what's coming. It's going to get greater and greater and greater. And you will not understand it even after a billion years in eternity. That's what's coming. And we get a taste of it now. Blessed are you if you have accepted his invitation. If you haven't, why would you not say yes to Jesus? Amen.